When was the last time you confronted your anxiety about something? It's easier said than done, isn't it? When we feel anxious, we tend to avoid the thing that's making us feel that way. Obviously, nobody wants to feel anxiety, but when we avoid tackling our problems, we keep enforcing that learned behaviour and tackling the issue then becomes harder and harder. But there are small steps that we can take that build up to finally addressing the things that are worrying us. Now, many of us are not only coping with our own anxiety, but also have anxious colleagues or have kids who are showing avoidant and anxious behaviour. And my guest, Nikki Odgers, has a wealth of tips and resources you can put into practice. So listen to this episode to find out how to help you and those around you tackle anxiety and discover some amazing things you never knew you could do. If you're in a high stress, high stakes job like medicine and you're feeling stressed or overwhelmed, burning out or getting out are not your only options. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris and welcome to You Are Not A Frog. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. My name is Nikki Odgers and I'm an educational psychologist. I work in private practice in Cambridge and I have a particular interest in supporting young people and children with anxiety. And within the school context, obviously, there's a lot of that that comes out in terms of school avoidance um, because of anxiety. But uh, school avoidance doesn't start off with kids um, not coming to school. Often there's all sorts of anxiety that happens before that, before ultimately you can end up with kids not going to school at all. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Nikki. And I've got Nikki on for a few reasons. Well, firstly, Nikki, you were one of our first guests, I think, a long time ago, weren't you? What were you talking oh about? Oh, my goodness, Rachel, that is going back in the depths of time. I think I was talking about growth mindset. Yes, that was it. it was brilliant. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, there's a, yeah, like I was saying, a couple of reasons. Firstly, I think all this stuff about kids and school avoidance, I find really fascinating. And I know a lot of our listeners have children who are school age and have children that if they're not school avoiding, may be quite anxious um, in other ways. You know, I have kids myself and at certain times, all of them have been anxious about, about various things. So I think this is something that we all have going on in our lives, really. Secondly, I've got you on, Nikki, because uh, listeners don't know this, but Nikki is my go-to wise old owl. And uh, so I'll, I'll use less of the old. Less old. Thanks, Rach. <laughs> Nikki and I spend hours and hours cogitating about various new um, models and concepts in psychology. And, you know, if you sit there saying, well, I thought about this the other day, Nikki will say, yeah, well, you know what? And she's already, she's already read five books about it and delved deeply into it. So Nikki's just the best fountain of knowledge about all things psychological. So, um, yeah, so she'd be already talked about growth mindset, which you introduced me to, which we use all the time. And side note, today was 
A-level results day. So. Oh, and what a, a day for anxiety for families across the across the country. Oh, my goodness. And I didn't sleep well last night. You know, I, I did wake up really early thinking, oh, what if, what if, what if? And luckily, my daughter, she been a total, total superstar. But um, we have a lot of our own anxiety about our children. And presumably, we pass that on to them massively as well. But we'll talk about that in a minute. One of the reasons, Nikki, I thought it would be good to talk about anxiety in kids and teenagers is because whenever I've talked about it with you, a lot of the tips and things that you've given, I've thought to myself, oh my goodness, those directly apply to me and they apply to adults as well. Now, I know that you are a child educational psychologist, so your remit is very much working with kids and teenagers. But really, I think as adults, we we don't know this stuff ourselves. And a lot of us are not just coping with kids with anxiety, but we're coping with our own anxiety and we're coping with colleagues, maybe partners who are also very anxious about stuff. So I'm hoping that this podcast will help us on lots of different levels, you know, coping with with people back at home, but also perhaps coping with some of our colleagues. Well, I certainly think a lot of the theory around anxiety can be applied to grown-ups as well as kids. Um, And I think just as when you work with kids, what you one of the things you're hoping to do with them is to help them understand um, anxiety, the purpose of anxiety, what maintains anxiety. I mean, certainly that's something that as adults as well can be very helpful in terms of thinking about how you, you as a grown up can manage your own anxiety. Um, and of course, like, we're going through sort of an epidemic of anxiety at the moment. I mean, and, you know, partly I think that's some of the overhang of COVID that's still here. And I think it's really important for people to sort of learn more about it, learn more about the theory of it, because I think once you understand it, then um, you have a much better grip on how you can actually learn to deal with it. Um, And that's ultimately what we want, isn't it? We want people to go out and be able to feel they can cope and their lives aren't ruled by anxiety. Okay, so so many questions. Um, Firstly, I know you've mentioned COVID, And I know that you've seen a massive rise in school avoidance since COVID. Is it, is it purely COVID or is there something else going on in this sort of anxiety epidemic? Do you think? I think it's really difficult to tell. I mean, I think COVID did have a pretty big impact on things. I think it reduced opportunities for young people to go out and do things that are sort of age appropriate for them. And so when they emerged to, you know, two years later, often they hadn't had the opportunities to go out and do things and learn that actually they can cope with them and they can do them. And so suddenly, you know, they went in maybe to COVID as a, you know, an 11 year old, they came out as a 13 year old and they're being asked to do things that typical 13 year olds can do. And if you are of an anxious disposition anyway, um, and you haven't had the experience of doing these things in little steps that gradually get you to what a typical 13 you might be able to do, then actually suddenly that big step seems really tricky and really difficult and it can feel very overwhelming for young people. So I think, I mean, certainly within schools, you now seem to see a lot more anxiety um, and school avoidance. I mean, this, the levels of attendance are uh, really a big cause for concern at the moment and the Department of Education is constantly producing information about you know uh, about that and not all of that obviously is to do with, co- uh, with uh, anxiety but I think quite quite a lot of it might be and then of course there are all the sort of things that you know teenagers always have to cope with so you know 
high stakes exams, as we said, say of exam day today, um, you know, social media. It's not to say that all social media is bad. Sometimes social media can be fantastic and can be a sort of a lifeline for connection. But, you know, when things go wrong with social media, then that can be quite tricky as well. So I think it's a whole range of different things, really, that are, that are causing anxiety amongst our young people at the moment. I think similar things probably causing anxiety amongst our older people as well, you know. Social media doesn't help overwhelm after COVID. And I do remember, you know, when lockdown finished, it was quite anxiety inducing going and doing stuff that was completely routine, like going to a shop or a concert. You're suddenly like, oh, my gosh. Absolutely. And you've been given the message for the last you know, two years. It's really dangerous out there. So if you are of an anxious disposition, you know, you believe it, right? Oh, well, I mean, it genuinely was dangerous at one point as well. But, um, you know, how do you pull back from that? That's, that's the thing, isn't it? And it got you guys as medics, you know, you had an absolute shocker. I mean, it was extraordinary what you guys did during the, during the pandemic to keep everyone together. And I mean, incredibly difficult circumstances. So, you know, it's, totally unsurprising if as a medic you felt overwhelmed and you felt anxious you know about everything that happened and and then that overspills and you see that with children so you see well particularly with again with kids who are avoidant about coming to school but um you know you might have a child with sort of an anxious disposition uh and then something happens so you know it might be a bereavement it might be a you know, family separation, it might be you know, just something, some, something a little bit tricky or traumatic. And that's a trigger. And at that point, the anxiety can sort of slightly, you know, take on a bigger role in kids' lives. And I, I mean, I, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm not a psychologist of grown-ups, but it would seem plausible that, um, you know, exactly the same things would happen amongst adults as well. I thought it was interesting that you said that we're just not very anxiety literate. And I know we had a conversation before this podcast about, you know, who's going to be listening? Is it going to be healthcare professionals? We can have psychiatrists listening. We can have GPs, etc. In my opinion, I don't think doctors are very literate about anxiety. Some people might might be if they really looked into it, but I certainly didn't know much about it. And traditional GP training has very little psychology in it. And so we do find it really difficult to understand ourselves. And one thing that I find quite difficult to tell the difference between is, you know, fair enough anxiety, like something you actually should be anxious about and something that is overblown anxiety. And uh, I, I do think there's a little bit of a zeitgeist. And I have noticed it sometimes with teenagers saying, well, I have anxiety around this issue. And I'm thinking, well, no, you're just worried about this. That's normal. You know, so people say, I, I have anxiety about my exams. No, you're just worried about your exams. And that is fair enough anxiety. That is really, really normal, right? But we seem to have pathologized it a little bit. So I think that's a really interesting point, Rachel. And I think, um, I think what's really important to know is that uh, everyone has anxiety, absolutely everyone in the world, and it's really, really helpful. Like we need anxiety. Anxiety keeps us safe. So if you're just looking at it from a biological perspective, you feel anxiety uh, or fear when you feel under threat. And when you feel under threat, your body is primed to release um, cortisone and adrenaline, and it just pumps you up and gets you ready to deal with that threat that's coming along and from a biological perspective what we're looking at is that threat from you know 
don't know, 100,000 years ago, which was probably, a, I don't know, I wouldn't say a mammoth, but I'm pretty sure that's the wrong time zone for grown-ups and grown-ups. There would have some sort of but, tiger. Yeah, like a tiger thing, right? Something so, with teeth. Yeah, exactly, something with, te- something with teeth, right? So what you had to do was you had to, like, bash it over the head or run away as fast as you can or, like, go completely still and um, just freeze. So that's the fight, flight, or sometimes freeze response, um, and that's what kept you safe. But of course, in modern days, unless you're very, very lucky or unlikely to come across something with big, scary teeth, but you have all these other things that are going on. So you would have A-levels or you would have a, like a really stressful meeting or you, you have you have things where you think you're under threat and your body responds in exactly the same way as it did as humans did, you know, 100,000 years ago when we we're faced with that big, scary tiger. So all those um, hormones are running around your body and you have those physical sensations in your body. So you have fluttery tummy, your heartbeats go, heart beats really fast, your face might be flushed, you feel sick. Um, you know, it's rubbish, right? It feels absolutely rubbish when you are frightened in that way. And it's a really unpleasant feeling. But sometimes anxiety now is helpful. So, for example, if we go back to the exam things we were talking about earlier, you know, actually a little bit of adrenaline is quite good. It gets you thinking straight. It gets you geared up, helps you revise, puts you in a bit of panic, helps you revise. So a little bit of anxiety uh, is actually quite good because it will gear you up to do the things that you need to do. The problem is, the problem comes when you have lots of false alarms. So when you start to feel you're under threat, when actually you're not really. And sometimes that can have a little bit and happen a little bit and that's kind of fine. But if it starts to happen a lot, then actually that can become quite a big problem because what then happens is it really interferes with your life. And then that can become really tricky. So the anxiety in itself often isn't the issue. It's actually our dealing with it that then becomes the issue. And as you see in kids, they get very anxious or heightened anxiety. And then they have ways of dealing with it that then are really unhelpful. Is that what you're saying? So I think it's really helpful to think about anxiety in terms of thoughts, feelings, physical sensations and behaviours. Because when we sort of look at it in the whole like that, first of all, we can unpick all the different bits of anxiety um, and they're all linked together, but we can also begin to see what maintains the anxiety. And as you say, what the issue is actually, it's not the anxiety in itself, but if it carries on for long periods of time and it starts to really get in the way of other things, then that's when it becomes a problem. So what we want to do is to think about how we can deal with anxiety when it's a false alarm. If it's real, right, it's good to be scared of stuff. Run, run from the tiger. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we need to be able to work out what to do when they're false alarms. Okay. So we have just been on a holiday uh, in um, Europe and um, I... I'm really frightened of driving in Europe because I've never done it, right? So I've been driving in the UK for over 30 years. I am a very competent driver. I've never had an accident. I'm very safe. Like I know I'm safe. But in Europe, I think, oh my God, if I get in the car, I will 
kill us all because I'll do something stupid. So my thoughts are, I won't be able to do this. I can't cope. I will kill us all. We will all die a horrible death on an Austrian Alps. And and I know that's kind of stupid when I stop and listen to it, but that is sort of what, what I think. So when I think about driving, I just sort of get slightly panicky, right? And I feel a little bit sick in my tummy. So that's sort of the physical sensations. And I feel worried. So that's the feeling. And the behavior that then happens is that I make every excuse underneath the sun. So I don't drive. And my husband, who drives all the time in Europe and is very accommodating, just says, should I put you on the drive? Should I, should I put you on the insurance to drive it? And every time I'm like, oh, yes, 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 let's do it. That's fine. I'll definitely drive this time. And I don't do it. So my behavior there is I avoid it because it's scary. I don't want to do it. Why would I do something that's scary? And that's a completely normal response. Okay, so let's just go through that again. So the thoughts are, I'll be useless. I won't be able to do it and I'll kill us all. That's my thought. That's my anxious prediction. My physical sensation when I think about it is <laughs> I sort of start to hyperventilate and I feel a little bit sick. Um, and the behavior is avoidance. And that would be a very typical kind of pattern. So you have an anxious prediction, which is really negative. So what I've actually done there is that I have, um, again, this is very typical of people with anxiety, is they... Um, they overpredict that something bad is going to happen, uh, and they overpredict how bad the thing is going to be. We're all going to die, right? Um, and they underpredict their ability to cope. I won't be able to do it. So that's just a little overview of how it worked. But let me just give a little thing, follow on from that which I think gives us a little bit of context into the moving on bit, which is around how do you deal with it? So um, for various reasons, this time, my husband, who is a fanatical cyclist, wanted to go off on his bike that he'd hired. So this time, instead of saying, it's all right, Nikki, I'll drive. He said, oh, no, I need to go and um, collect my bike and you need to give me a lift there. And then you need to drive back to the house all by yourself. <laughs> And so I kind of had to do it this time. I kind of had to step up and do it. So I was very brave and I did it. And of course, it was utterly fine. So this thing I've been avoiding for 20 years was completely fine because I've been driving for 30 years. I've never had an accident. I'm a very competent driver. So uh, I got back into the house. I was like, great, driving's fine. But an hour later, what my brain said was, oh, got away with it. This time I got away with it. But next time, who knows what could happen? So, next couple of days, again, my husband's off cycling, so I have to go and <laughs> drive the car, cheer myself up. Every time I think, oh my goodness, um, this is, you know, tricky, but actually every time I could do it and it was fine. And that's one of the things that you, it's really important to know about anxiety is that the drive is that you avoid the thing that you're scared of. Everyone does this. Like it's completely normal and natural. Like everyone in the whole world, if you possibly can, you do. Because frankly, it's horrid. Who wants to do it and, you know, potentially die and, you know, all those things I was telling you about, right? But between when you avoid things, what you do is you lose the opportunity to learn that actually it's not so bad. 
you know, probably the really terrible thing isn't going to happen. And also, very importantly, that you can cope. So even if it goes wrong, you can cope. And again, there was a really interesting, well, there was an example of this. So um, uh, we were parked somewhere, like the second time in the in the car driving, and it was an uphill reverse start, which I we live in Cambridge. Rachel and I live in Cambridge. Cambridge is like the flattest place in the entire world. Like literally, we don't have hills. There's no hills for miles around. So like no experience for probably the last 20 years of reversing up a hill anyway. And then there was this new like, handbrake catch thing which didn't work and I could not get this bloody thing to work and there was a cyclist standing a meter in front of me every time I tried to reverse I inched further towards the cyclist instead of going up the hill kept going down the hill like it was a nightmare in the end I just said to my husband I can't do it I can't do it you have to do it for me and we got out and he did it for me but actually even though in a sense some of my negative predictions about I can't you know I won't be able to do it sort of came true there what I actually did then was I was like, but that's like, why didn't that work? What was wrong with the handbrake? So I went away, looked at some YouTubes. Oh, that's how electric handbrakes work. Oh, okay. And I went outside and I practiced on the hill when there was no one around. Then I got it. So even when things go wrong, they can be opportunities to learn. So it's not like you have to try things and it always goes right. So you're saying that as you drove more and more and more, your brain was saying less and less, oh, you got away with it, you got away with it. You just sort of got habituated and you and you. So I got habituated, but what was interesting was about how long it took. So so one of the things that happened was the first couple of drives, my husband was in the car with me. And and then what happened, I was like, well, I can do it with while he's in the car with me. Right. But if he gets out of the car, then it's not gonna work, right? And I realized what that was, that's called a safety behavior, right? And again, when you have anxiety, then lots of people have what we call safety behaviors. So for example, if you have um, social anxiety, some people's safety behaviors might be, for example, to put lots of makeup on. So they're sort of hiding their safe, their self. You know, they can't go out without their makeup because the makeup in some ways keeping them safe. Or it might be that you are preparing what you uh your topics of conversation beforehand so like you can go out and you can do it but only if you thought around beforehand what you're going to say or um with kids going to school for example it could be as fun i can go into school but only if miss brown's there with me and she meets me at the front gate so we, those are safety behaviors right so they they are sort of reassurance that things are going to be okay but actually the reality is you know really what does make how does makeup keep you safe you know, how does my husband being in the car really keep me safe apart, apart from in reversing upwards up the hill? Yelling, stop! <laughs> stop, yeah, you're right. You're right. But, but often they, they sort of take on a life of their own yeah. as well. So, um, you know, again, that's something to think about if you have, if you are anxious or if you've got a child who's anxious, you know, are they relying on, on safety behaviours um, to sort of keep them through? Because actually what you really want to help people or young people to do is to feel confident that they can cope on their own and they're not having to rely on these kind of safety behaviors to keep them through so that's interesting so there's two ways of dealing with anxiety which are not helpful so the first one being absolutely avoiding that yes. thing like uh, yeah. like the plague absolutely and avoidance avoidance tends to make stuff worse right it's not just it just sort of leaves it in a in a neutral state it yeah it makes it worse and that's really hard isn't it because if you have a child with anxiety then as a parent, you want to make it better. And 
So you say, oh, no, of course, darling, you don't need to do that. No, don't worry. You don't need to go to that. You don't need to do that. I'll do that for you. I'll sort it out. And you jump into rescuer mode. And that's not a very helpful way of doing it. But the other thing that it's really important to know is that our children are our most precious things in the world, right? Like we love them more than anything. And, you know, if you're looking from a biological perspective, you want to keep them, you know, survival of the species, you want to keep them safe, right? So, of course, we do that. Like everyone does that, of course, because that's normal and natural. And we do it because we love them. And like, so no one should feel bad or guilty about doing that because you're doing something that's normal and protective. And what's interesting is there's research that suggests that if you've got a child who doesn't have an anxious disposition, going out and sort of helping them and, you know, stepping involved doesn't increase their anxiety at all. But if you have kids who do have an anxious disposition, then sometimes what can happen is that if as a parent you step in a little bit too early. I say parent, but frankly, you know, it doesn't have to be a parent. It could be anyone around them. It could be a grandparent. It could be an aunt. It could be a friend. It could be a teacher, like people who want to help. So sometimes if you've got people around the child who are sort of stepping in really early and reducing opportunities for kids to have a go at stuff – what can happen is, well, first of all, the child doesn't have the opportunity to have a go at stuff. And so they never learn that actually it's probably not so bad or they can cope. But also kids are like really tuned in on those around them. So if they are looking up at granny or the teacher or mum or big sister or whatever, and like the mum, like they're looking anxious or, you know, whatever, then the kid is, if you've got an anxious disposition, then you're going to be thinking, oh my God, you know, like, they're re- okay, like there really is something to be worried about now, right? And if, you know, everyone's jumping in to help me, then, you know, I'm absolutely right to be worried. Um, and so it can have sometimes a sort of counter uh, you know, it, it, it can be not, not helpful. But what I want to stress is that really nobody should f- feel bad about this. Like it's honestly, it's just, it's like human nature, right? So, and we're like programmed to do this, but it's helpful possibly to be thinking about are there people in the child's realm who might be completely inadvertently and with absolutely the best intentions enabling the child to avoid the things that they're finding really scary. And the other thing I want to say about this is that when we're talking about, if you've got a child or a young person who's got, who's really anxious about things, like they're ready at the anxious point, right? So if you are going to try and help them to face their fears and to learn that they are able to cope, what you're absolutely not going to do is say, well, avoidance is terrible. We're just going to make you face your fears full on, you know, in the same way that you wouldn't, like if somebody had a phobia of spiders, you wouldn't say, right, we're going to lock your room for, you know, two hours with 25 tarantulas, right? And that would just call you a phobia because you'll, you know, you'll just learn you're okay. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about encouraging kids to face their fears because that's too much. So what happens if you put, you know, children, young people in that situation, and and I imagine grown-ups as well, but again, as I say, it's not my area, um, is that 
If people are too overwhelmed, they don't learn. And what you're hoping to be able to do is to, for the young person to learn that they can cope. So you are not throwing kids in the deep end with stuff. You are not saying face your most dangerous fears, you know, straight off. What you might be doing is saying, okay, so this is something you, you know, if it's school, if you, anxiety, for instance, you know, I know at the moment you're really anxious about, you know, going to school. Let's just break it down. Let's break it down into 10 little steps. What would the easy, first step be? Putting your school uniform on. Just try that. What do you think will happen if you put your school uniform on? Let's see, shall we? Ooh, interesting. What will happen? Let's do a little experiment to find out. And um, so you're breaking it down to steps. So the first one might be put your school uniform on. The second one might be put your school uniform on and drive in the car with mum or dad very slowly past the school gates at six o'clock in the evening when there's nobody around. And then step number three might be to walk up to the school gates at, you know, three o'clock when school's coming out. So you are providing opportunities for children or young people to face their fears, but in a series of really teeny weeny steps at a rate that feels manageable for them. And the idea is that by doing this, they are learning new information about the experience and that it's not as awful as they think it's going to happen. And also that they learn that they are able to cope. And that's one of the key approaches to supporting with anxiety. But obviously it's really scary because, you know, because everyone wants to avoid things that they're scared of, like everyone. So the key there is to pitch it at the right level so it's not overwhelming and so that um, you are able to have success. Just thinking about how this might apply to adults. I know that often situations happen, don't they? And I'm just thinking maybe if you've made a mistake in your in your practice and then people are very avoidant of doing that thing again because well I made a mistake last time and it can completely cripple people for years and years and years but again it's that sort of I guess supported graded exposure really is what you're what you're talking about yes and presumably I mean you know I'm not a medic Rachel but there must be I mean I hope there are procedures in place to support doctors when you know things have gone wrong and it's not just punitive it's you know okay let's do it in a supportive way because everyone makes mistakes like you know doctors aren't superheroes like everyone in the world makes mistakes sometimes it just happens yeah yeah and there are certainly things that can support but I think a lot of people are are left pretty pretty unsupported I think what happens with anxiety with lots of people in healthcare is even if it's not based on a mistake or something that's happened the more stressed we get you know we end up sort of catastrophizing and predicting about things that are going to happen which I'm sure is the same for children for teenagers and for adults and then we have this really uncomfortable feeling that we think we just got to make go away and that's really hard no, and no one likes feeling anxious and if we're on the receiving end of someone else's anxiety again even if it's not a child but it maybe it's a trainee or a colleague we think we have to make their feeling go away by rescuing them and doing that thing that they are anxious about because that is being a good colleague but from what you said actually that's often going to make things worse rather than than make things better 
But I think with kids, what you would be, I mean, again, Rachel, this is up to you to say whether you think this is appropriate for adults or not. But if you were, if you had a colleague who was work, well, if I was talking to a parent and saying, you know, how you could support your child with anxiety. So remember what we said that like the thinking often goes a little bit wonky with, you know, because it's a false alarm. So um, people will sort of over, you know, catastrophize often you know it's all you know it's going to be a disaster or it's sort of black and white thinking so it's either all great or all awful um so the thinking is so what we so you can have what we call thinking errors so um what happens is that people tend to have automatic thought well, if you have a big feeling about something often you can link it back to what we call an automatic thought so an automatic thought is something that just pops into your head and often goes unchallenged and often can sort of stem back to like even things in your childhood, for instance, and they're just wrong. <laughs> and we tend to, there tend to be sort of certain, as we said, categories of thinking uh, of these automatic thoughts. Um, so like catastrophizing for one, sort of black and white thinking, a fortune telling, you know, if, if, if I do that procedure, it's going to go wrong. I mean, if I go into school, everyone will hate me. And what can be really interesting is, we talk about with you know sometimes with kids is you try and get them to catch catch the thoughts so what is the thought that they're actually thinking and again if you're a parent with a kid you could you could say well what do you think is going to happen so again you're trying to identify the anxious prediction what do you think is going to happen um and sometimes just sort of verbalizing stuff is enough to make others think oh actually do i do i really think that or is that a little bit bonkers so um, with kids, what you might want to be doing is, you know, if a child is really worried about something, you ask questions. So, you know, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? You know, has that happened before? Has that happened to anyone you know? You know, what, what would be so bad about that happening? So instead of sort of going for reassurance, and kids sometimes can become a little bit hooked on reassurance. It can be that safety behavior that we talked about before. So, you know, it'll be okay this time because mum, mum, dad told me, you know, it was all right. And I think at that point, what you want to do is to say to move into the questions because the questions, you know, why do you think that? So what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? Has that happened to anyone before? So what that does is gently allows the person you're talking to to just reflect on whether their thought is true or not it just opens up the possibility if you are actively trying to persuade someone that what they're saying is nonsense they might appear to agree with you but whether they actually believe you or not i think is well questionable you know if you're sort of trying to force people into believing something i don't something i don't think that really works but by the questioning approach what you're doing is you just say helping them to think things through and just to think oh actually how have i got that right and as i said because they are these automatic thoughts often people don't question them they just sit there and uh, can have a very powerful effect on people i think we often think that we know what someone else is thinking as well so it's like, right, well, I know exactly what Nikki's thinking right in this situation. She's anxious. I know what she's thinking. Well, you have no idea unless you actually say, Nikki, what's behind that? What's, you know, <laughs> what things are going through your head now? Yeah. Yes. And then you might 
come back with, oh yeah, I'm going to kill everyone on the, in France if I drive on the road, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Okay. That's true. <laughs> but that sort of mind reading thing is another, you know, very typical one of the sort of thinking errors. So, um, for example, like if you've got social anxiety, you know, typical thought might be they think I'm so boring. They, I'm just boring them to tears. They just think I'm awful. Like, why would they want to hang out with me? You know, that's a mind, like, how do you know? Maybe they think you're the most interesting person you've ever met. Like, you have no idea, right? But for some people, those thoughts are just there in their minds all the time. And, um, and of course, if you think that, right, of course, if you think that you're going to be anxious, anyone would think that, be anxious if they thought, that the people they were talking to thinks they're incredibly boring and why would they want to talk to them? Just on a side note, I was listening to this podcast about mind reading and they'd looked at the science of it and they'd actually done a study on who was the best at mind reading. And it was totally hilarious. So who do you think, uh, they were looking at um, adults and different relationships in adults and who were best at reading their thoughts. Who do you think were the best people at mind reading? I've got no 50-year-old women, menopausal women. <laughs> menopausal women, no friends, maybe. Okay, the people who were the best at knowing what the other person was thinking were couples on their first date. <gasps> no. Oh, yes, yes. Do you know why? Why? Because they asked each other. Oh. Because they didn't. Okay, so, right, you'll get this one now. Who are the worst at mind reading? People who've been married for 50 years? Yes. <laughs> married couples. Because they thought they knew what the other person was thinking. And they Ooh, were the that's worst. that's so interesting. Yes, isn't it? So the basic thing is nobody can mind read. Absolutely nobody. And the more you think you know somebody, the more you think you know what they're thinking and the, the, the more wrong you are. And, and so the couples on the first date, cause they didn't know each other at all. They'd go, Oh, what are you thinking? What do you, you know? And they would ask each other. So then they would know. But I think that's interesting. So if you're supporting a colleague or a trainee or a child with anxiety, do not assume you know what they're, you know what they're thinking. But I'm, I'm interested to hear that you're saying that just the question of asking them is going to be helpful for them as well because once you have to articulate some of the bonkers thoughts like I'll kill everyone on the road if I get in that car you go well actually yeah I know that's a bit extreme isn't it you know once you hear you, you say it yourself say it that's quite powerful but also it gives you a, a way out so let me give you a, like this is my daughter's going to kill me but I'm going to tell you this anyway I get it. You'll push for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole, and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops top five episodes sorry and leap into your happiest thriving self again just go to you are not a frog.com slash quiz so this is an example of how it works in children right so when my daughter was in year three at school she had a group of lovely friends and then one week she became very sad like really distressed and you know I couldn't work out what was going What's going on? So on another Friday or whatever, I said to her, you know, what's, tell me what's happened. And after much sort of probing, she said, well, what's happened is they've all started playing Harry Potter at lunchtime. And they know that I hate Harry Potter. 
Um, and they're doing it because they don't want to play with me anymore. And she was absolutely devastated. Bless her. So because I just read a book on using cognitive behavioral therapy approaches with young, with young children, I said to her, darling, should we do an experiment? Like, how can we test that out? You know, what could we do to see whether that's actually true or not? And um, she said, well, maybe I, maybe I could ask them. <laughs> so I was like, hmm, maybe you could. Good idea, right? So um, next school day she went in and uh, on the way back I said, so, so what happened? Did you ask them? And she said, yes, I did ask them. And they said, of course we want to play with you. We just like playing Harry Potter. But, but we thought you didn't like us because you didn't want to play Harry Potter. So, like she had just completely and utterly got the wrong end of the stick, right? It was not like to any, like, us as a grown up, we're like, that's nuts, right? But in her head, that was really, really true. And the lovely thing about it is her and all her friends are now 1920 and they are still friends. They still go out together. But honestly, if she hadn't asked that question, I think it would have sort of fallen apart. So that's a child example. But what I'm saying is that because there are these automatic thoughts, people don't challenge them. They just pop into your head. And actually having an opportunity to ch challenge them can, can be really interesting. But you tend not to do it unless you can catch that thought in your head. And then, you know, it's great if you've got somebody who can ask you those questions. Or maybe what you could do is you could even have a little prompt sheet. Let's just ask them myself, is it true? What's the evidence that thinks true? What's the evidence it's not true? What's most likely? Is it is it likely? Is there another alternative? You could just have a little script sheet just to ask yourself. I mean, that's what we'd suggest with sort of older teens. And it's so funny. You're saying that's nuts, isn't it? It's totally nuts. And here's me thinking, nope, this happens with adults all the time. You know, so many times, wrong end of the stick, someone assumes that the other person's not talking to them because they've somehow said something that offends them, but actually the other person's not talking to me either because they literally didn't see them or their mind is on a patient that they've just seen and they're worried about that. And um, it just got me thinking about how many times maybe we assume that the other people is being lazy or obstructive or, you know, I, I do sometimes hear, I've probably got lots of irate emails about this, but sometimes you hear more senior doctors talking about the trainees as being quite snowflake, you know, not wanting to step up to this or that. And it does make me wonder about, I think certainly there are, there are different ways in which people work these days. There is that. But I do wonder whether sometimes anxiety in, in trainees or the younger generation, you know, because it's quite scary when you start to having to do all these different things. And, and then they say, Oh, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with that or whatever. So they use a sort of language of I'm not comfortable or whatever. And all that is, is just, it's just anxiety and avoidance. And then the seniors go, well, they're not comfortable. I can't possibly question them what they mean. But they just sat down and then went, actually, yeah, well, tell me what it is that you're not comfortable with. Let's unpick that the generations might actually start communicating a bit better. So that's kind of interesting. Like, I mean, so, you know, obviously I'm not a medic. I'm thinking about me like you as trainee medics 
doing stuff for the first, you know, cutting people open. Like, I imagine that's completely terrifying, right? I think that's pretty normal to be frightened of doing stuff like that as a non-medic. Well, it's interesting, Nikki, because some of those like cutting people open stuff, you've, you've always got, you do have people around to do that. It's some of the other stuff that is just as anxiety inducing, like going and having that difficult conversation where you might not have that supervision there or actually doing something on your own. That's not a really high stakes procedure, but there's other things that you can really build up in your mind as being, you know, and I think this is actually more to do with interpersonal relationships perhaps with colleagues than it is with procedures and things that you do with your patients and things which are quite highly supervised and you have to be signed off and things and things like that does that make sense it does I mean what's kind of interesting about that though is maybe it brings us back to what we were talking about right at the beginning we were saying that um you know sometimes you have anxiety and it's for you know, it's because of false alarms. So like, you know, you sort of slightly got got the wrong end of the stick about how actually worrying it is. But sometimes people are anxious about stuff that is genuinely worrying, right? Like for real. So for example, in a school setting, you know, kids being bullied, of course they're going to be anxious. Like, (laughs) but in the same way, I think if you're a medic and you have to do like a really complicated medical procedure that you've never done before, or you whatever you know of of course you're going to be worried about that but and you sort of need a slightly different approach for that so with young with kids what one of the things you would be talking about if the kid if a child is anxious about something that is they've got a good reason to be anxious you might be saying okay well let's do problem solving let's um actually talk it through what's the best way to approach this and actually teaching children young people a problem solving framework is super helpful because often kids just don't know how to do that so the framework you would be looking at is okay so let's really define what the problem is let's think about a whole range of different solutions doesn't really matter what they are because we're just you know pulling as many as we can out of the air then what we want to do is we want to evaluate them like is is a good solution it's terrible solution is it you know good enough and then is it doable then you choose the best one and then you might need to practice how you're going to put that into place and with kids you know sometimes it depends what it is you know that might involve role play or talking things through or a new skill whatever and then you say off off you go go and have a go and then come back and you review how that works it sounds like coaching to me you sit down you talk about what the problem is you work out what the issue is you work out how you might solve it you go you go and have a go at it it would really work in adults I think what we struggle with is actually defining the problem because I was going to say to you in in adults and I'm sure you probably see this in kids as well. It's one thing if you've got a specific thing that they're anxious about. But what if it's sort of just the general anxiety about about everything? So it's actually very difficult to identify a specific problem. Or, 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 or are there often very specific underlying, underlying things? Well, it's different. So some kids will have specific phobias or specific things like you know scared of dogs common ones scared of going to bed by by themselves so with kids with those sort of things what you might be doing is talking about worry time i don't know how this would apply to grown-ups oh my goodness it 100 i do worry time often if there's something really on my mind i'll say right i I can't right i'm gonna worry about this later six o'clock and i get six o'clock generally it's gone 
Yeah. Yeah. I've applied all this to myself, believe me. Okay, cool. Well done. So, yeah, so with kids, what you or you, teens, what you might encourage them to do is like, you know, just to write a note, put it in a worry monster. Have you seen worry monsters, Rachel? No. Oh, they're lovely. So, worry monsters for kids. One. Yeah, get your own. Everyone, everyone listening to the podcast, get, get their own worry right. monster, yeah. right? So, they're like to- toys, um, monsters, and they often have little pouches or like zipped mouths, and you write down what the worry is. <laughs> pop it in the pouch of the mouth and then worry time you come to worry time and then you take out the worry and then you you think about the worry then and then that's a good opportunity then because what you you can apply problem solving if it's an actual something you can do something about or you can you know ask the questions if you've got you know somebody there to help you about it so worry time is is not about okay we're just not going to talk about worry but purpose of worry time is to say let's just put it aside for to practice putting it aside for the moment so we can come back to it so that it's not all consuming all the time yeah and different things will work for different people so if you're in a real you know panic about something you know those grounding exercises okay five things you can see four things you can touch five things you know three things you can hear um that's great or if you again you're in a total panic about something, okay, let's go through the alphabet. We're going to think of um, women's names, so Amy, Barbara, Carly. To do that, so this that sort of distraction technique can be very helpful, just in terms of sort of calming you down. Because what can happen is if you start to sort of focus on the thoughts and the physical sensations, all that does like. If you're just thinking all the time, as I'm thinking with my car example, I'm going to kill them, I'm going to kill them. Like, you know, that's not going to keep you calm, right? Just thinking that is going to maintain the anxiety. If you're focusing on that, I feel sick, I feel sick, I feel like, where's my tummy going? That's going to make you feel anxious. It's going to make you want to avoid it. So if you can try and distract yourself away from things, that can work. And all those are really helpful. And I know when we do our webinars about anxiety and stress often we talk about worry time we talk about distracting yourself with physical activity star jump things like that can be really helpful as well um i want to ask you about safety behavior because it strikes me that safety behavior in the way that you described it can be unhelpful just as much as avoidance is unhelpful is there ever any safety behavior that can be helpful so say um, I'm just thinking with, with adults as someone being very anxious or having, almost having a phobia about having a, a difficult conversation or giving someone feedback and you know that the avoidance be well don't worry I'll do it for you I'll do it for you but is there ever a case of you go and do it I will be in that room over there and you can stop and phone me at any point so to almost give them a way out I think that sounds like a great idea but I think you know, that sounds like a, like a one-off conversation. Like if you were, what you would, I suppose the thing is what you want ultimately is for the person to think, you know, I've got this, like I can do Without having to have you in the other room the whole time. Yes. Okay. But remember what we talked about small steps. So, you know, if I, you know, I I just can't have this conversation. It's too much for me. It's too overwhelming. But if they can do it with somebody else in the room or just on hand, you know, Right, that's one of the small steps towards it. But if they have to have the same conversation, you know, with somebody else, then maybe next time the person on it doesn't have to be in the room. Maybe they could be at the end of the phone if they need to be. So that's a, just a series of building it up in small steps, really. What do you recommend for adults who have, say, anxious kids, anxious dependents, maybe even anxious colleagues? Because I know when we were talking earlier, you said you have to model not being anxious yourself or model 
model dealing with anxiety well? So how can we model that well to our families and to our patients and to our colleagues? Well, I think, I mean, you can just literally, you can talk about it. You can say, do you know what? When I was your age, I had exactly this problem. And, you know, I felt really panicky about it. But then I thought, and then you tell tell them. But you could be saying, we could do this. Or, for example, you could say, God, you know, I'm really, I've got this problem at work. I'm really worried about it. I don't quite know what to do. Maybe I'll do that problem solving. You know, that thing we talked about last week. Okay, let's sit it down. I'm going to work out. So you could do that. Or it could be that if, you know, again, you could say, do you know what? I was at that party the other day and this voice in my head the whole time came up saying, you're so boring, you're so boring, you're so boring. Why would anyone want to talk to me? But, you know, I stopped and I thought about it and I said to myself, actually, I don't think that's true. I don't think I was that boring, actually. (laughs) So you're sort of just modelling the sort of strategies that we've talked about. Or again, it could be, you know, feeling I'm feeling a little bit panicky now. I'm just going to go and take three deep breaths. I'm going to do the grounding thing, you know, five things I could hear. So all the techniques that you might want your young, your kids or young people to do, you could be just, you know, you you can verbalise it so you can do that. But I mean, it's really tricky, right? Like, you know, if you've got a kid who's really anxious in front of you, how do you deal with that? And I think, you know, acknowledging the feelings, you know, I can see this, you're really worried about this, normalising it, you know, Lots of people feel worried when they try things for the first time. Let them know you're really confident. You know, I'm really confident you can handle this because you've done this before. You did something exactly like this last year when you remember you were worried about that and then you did it. And then let them know that you're there to help. You know, I'm here. I'm, your, you know, you've got your back. You just let me know what I can do to help. And I'm with you on this. And I think that message makes them feel heard normalizes the experience but also helps them hopefully to believe that they can cope but as i say it's you know often with anxiety it's sort of small steps isn't it and not throwing people into the deep end too much not asking them to do too much too soon and i think that's something we do get wrong in medicine it's like yeah deal with it just do it just do it and then you'll be fine and then it's like then you feel you have to and then it's a horrible experience and then it then you're going okay well I did it and look what look how that turned out and so I'm not not doing that again and just finally Nikki I know that in your role as an ed psych you often deal with neurodiversity and there are some conditions that make anxiety a lot worse is is there any changes in what you might do for say kids who have autism or ADHD in terms of helping them manage their anxiety is it a different sort of anxiety or is it exactly the same just with different ways of coping (laughs) well so um autism people with autism uh have often have higher rates of anxiety um I mean considerably higher rates of anxiety than um uh, than others so I mean there's some research that suggests that you know over 70% of um, people with autism have sort of measurable levels of anxiety um, so that's kind of like a pretty big deal right um, and for those people there are issues around sensory sensitivities that can make them feel very overwhelmed so you would want to be doing something kind of different for them around that you know if they're in noisy environments then it, we might be thinking about okay uh ear defenders or you know can they just go and do their stuff somewhere quieter or I mean with kids there's a lot of uh you know labels and uniforms that just is like 
really find quite difficult. And that can be very overwhelming. And also with um, people with autism, there's a lot of, uh, because of the difficulties with social communication, social understanding, that can also make life very difficult for them. And they can, um, particularly social anxiety can become an issue. And also, I think sometimes because they can be, you know, sometimes a little bit quirky personality, certainly in school settings, sometimes they can become um, victims of bullying. So actually then like, you know, genuinely, you know, really rubbish things happening to them. So I'm, I'm not sure it's that the ang- the feeling is different, but the triggers for the anxiety can be different, can be different. And then they need to be supported in different ways. So as I said, with the sensory stuff, it's around how can we manage the environment to make that more supportive with social understanding. It can be around, well, how can we help them to understand, you know, what, what might be going on in the situation? Mm-hmm. So they've picked up on the nuances correctly and they're not thinking you know somebody doing that means that everybody hates me or you know whatever that's sort of perpetuating the anxiety and I think with ADHD again I think there's you know I think the difficulties that you have might have there around organizing and planning I mean that genuinely just makes some activities more stressful than than it is for other people and that will probably make you feel worried so then again it's not so much the anxiety is different but it's what you would do to support with that is different because it might be that those people need to be thinking about okay right let's have we got a system what system can we put in place to support you with the planning the organization and you know all of those things that will help that makes a lot of sense thank you so nikki if you were going to give us your top three tips to managing someone else's anxiety or helping someone else manage their, their anxiety in, in the context of children and teenagers, which I know you work, which I'm sure we can apply to adults as well. What, what would they be? So I think it's probably really important that people understand the purpose of anxiety um, and sort of understand that idea about thoughts, feelings, physical sensations, behaviours are all linked together because that gives you a sort of theoretical background for you to really get it and you know pretty young kids can get that and there are all sorts of books um, for kids that are great at helping that and there's great youtube videos as well um, little clips that appropriate for all different ages that you can um, find that will help um, young people to understand that i think the other thing is that it's just super important to face your fears And I know that's really tricky and I know people might need a little bit of support with that because the, you know, as we said, it's completely natural to want to avoid things, but it's about facing your fears in a way that's manageable for you. So doing it in teeny weeny weeny steps, if you need to thinking about that overarching goal and what can you do? What do you need to learn so that to feel that you are able to cope with the things And then I think probably it's great to have some support with this as well. That would be the other thing. You need a buddy, right? You need like backup, somebody who's on your side, who's going to be your cheerleader, right? Throughout all of this. Um, So if you're a parent, what you're going to be saying to your kids is, you know, I noticed when you did that brave thing, right? Well done. You know, you, I saw you didn't want to talk to, John but you went over and you said hello to him even though you were worried well done you 
great stuff. But I imagine it's the same with grown-ups, right? If, you know, if your partner can do that, fantastic. If you haven't got a partner, maybe your friends can do that and have somebody there. And again, the role of that cheerleader is not necessarily to be giving reassurance um, because, as we said before, reassurance can sometimes reduce opportunities for people to learn they can cope. But, um, you know, gentle questioning, cheerleading when things are going well, normal, you know, everyone feels worried about stuff, you know, it's, it's it's normal right great advice great advice and it just shows the importance of air cover which i've been talking a lot recently get, get your mates around you get your colleagues around you just to just to cheer you on and to yeah make you make you go for stuff really really important i think and books are really good i i love the there's something about anxiety beat the anxiety gremlin or something like that oh my oh, goodness there's one. great books so uh mm. beating the anxiety gremlin there's for older teenagers there's um something called my anxiety handbook for younger kids there's poppy o'neill books which you see in the works very cheaply at the moment they're great what to do when you worry too much that's a fantastic book for sort of upper primary lower secondary school whole range of really fantastic books out there for um yeah for kids and young people to help them understand anxiety and also strategies about what to do and also i must mention this one too if you've got a child with anxiety there's an absolutely fantastic book called helping your child with worries and fears by kathy cresswell and lucy willits which i would very strongly recommend and i must say i was just i was just looking this up while you were talking one of the best books about anxiety I've read for adults is Swearing Alert, Get Your Shit Together by Sarah Knight. And she she wrote the uh, magical art of, you know, not giving a F, as it were. Um, and, and I read that and I just thought it was brilliant. So if you're an adult that is struggling with anxiety, then then do check out that book. And I would say as well, do get some help, do get some professional help because talking to a therapist about this is, can be really, really helpful, can't it? Anxiety has got a really good success rate if you get the right support. So, I mean, yes, you can't guarantee everyone will be cured of it, but on the whole, it's a pretty good success rate. I mean, I think managing one's anxiety is is a basic life skill that should be taught everywhere. It should be taught at school and at medical school and, and all other jobs really because it's it's such a big big thing and we're just not very literate about our emotions and what happens with the amygdala and all that sort of stuff so thank you for the work you're doing it's really really helpful so I know that you offer sort of one-to-one and group support for uh, grown-ups for adults who have children who particularly suffer with anxiety and school avoidance so if people wanted to get in touch with you about that how, how could they find out more so they could go to my website which is odgerspsychology.com um, and you can find information there so yes so i am going to be running a support um, group for parents uh of kids who are worried about attending school. So, and also I've got um, a PDF that has got some information about resources, so books um, that are helpful for kids, uh, and also a couple of links to YouTube, um, videos that you can share with your kids if they're anxious, um, and also a little format around how to support your child to do problem solving. Great, so we'll put the link to that in the show notes if you want that, and you can just sign up and get that from Nikki. So Nikki, thank you so much for being on the podcast. That's been really helpful. I think that's gonna be helpful for grown-ups with kids with anxiety grown-ups with colleagues with anxiety and grown-ups with anxiety themselves so thank you and we'll get you back again soon lovely it's lovely to be here Rach thanks so much thanks for listening 
Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now.